But boys are just as likely to become victims of childhood sexual abuse. And so it's important we're having these conversations with all our children. And then, of course, we want all of them to grow up to learn to respect others' consent as well. But it's making that difference clear. When I think about these different topics that we can talk about consent, obviously, be things like physical touch, whether or not they want to spend time with a specific person. But also another really easy one is food choices, is giving them some decision over what clothes they wear, what food they consume, what toy they want to play with at a specific moment, instead of forcing them into these gender binaries of you have to play with this specific toy because you're a girl, or you can't play with this specific toy because you're a boy, and respecting their decisions the whole way. When it comes to sex, if you've done that work about consent throughout your child's life, it becomes easy to say, you know, it'll be a no-brainer to say this applies to sex as well, and sex especially that when we're uncomfortable talking about specific topics, that's exactly why we need to be more explicit and make sure everybody's on the same page. When you were talking, I was thinking about an example. I saw a video once of a teacher who had, when her uh, students would come to her classroom, she had different ways that they, they could interact with her to start their morning when they were walking through the door. And it was, would you like a hug? Would you like just a hello or a handshake? Or would you like a high five? And giving the kids a choice of what, how they interacted for that day, what they needed that day. And I thought that was such a great way to kind of let them decide what they were comfortable with. Exactly. And it can. It can be so much more relaxed. And something that I think as adults we need to keep in mind, especially with really little kids, is we'll often feel rejected if a child doesn't want to give you a hug. Oh, do you not like me anymore? You got to stop those comments too, right? That's a form of pressure. That's a form of coercion. But also... Consent has very little to do with how we feel about people. That's one piece of it, right? That there are some people that I just don't like enough to let them hug me, right? But there are also days when I just don't want to be touched. There are moments when I'm not in the mood, that I'm feeling frustrated and a hug is not going to fix it. And so to depersonalize that kind of stuff too, one of the ways that if you're feeling that sense of rejection, that's something you as an adult can work on, but also Another thing you can do is say, yeah, here's a, a bunch of different options for how we're going to interact, and you can pick the one that's best for you, and that can help that interaction feel more comfortable for everyone, too. I really like that approach. In your research, you look a lot at college students, and what is the messaging that girls and boys are you know, receiving about sexual assault and consent, and they actually differ quite a bit. And I wanted to uh, hear your thought, you know, what you've kind of found out in doing your research and, you know, any other relevant findings you've kind of discovered as you go on this journey of looking at that messaging. Yeah, as much as the conversation that we're starting with is that consent is a good piece of education for everyone, regardless of where they are on the gender spectrum, right? Instead, once we get to college campuses, we learn that these messages have been pretty gendered, that women and girls have been taught that it's your responsibility to avoid a sexual assault. If you get sexually assaulted, you must have not followed the rules. You must have stepped out of the expectations of how women and girls should behave, and you've done something bad, and it's your fault. And so in my research, I found that the vast majority of sexual assault prevention tips that colleges post on their websites are still focused at potential victims who are coded as feminine. And that comes out in things like, don't wear your hair in a ponytail, don't wear high heels, you know, be nice to people, these really like feminine coded piece of advice. In contrast, boys and men are getting almost no messaging around sexual violence aside from, and this is not in the study, but comes from some of the other work that I've done. The thing that they hear most often is you might get accused, you need to protect yourself. 
which is the exact opposite of what we want them to hear. But they're not getting almost any positive socialization of things like, first of all, sexual assault doesn't happen on accident. You can ensure that you will never be accused by false allegations are rare and very, very rare. When they take place, women are actually much more likely to be falsely accused than men. And you don't need to worry about that as much as everyone is telling you you need to. And also, because sexual assault isn't a mistake, it's something that happens very intentionally. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to. And instead, you can really just enjoy these conversations about consent and know that you're creating a future for yourself where you're going to have more meaningful relationships, where everyone is there because they want to be. And I think that that's one of the messages I really wish that young adults were getting around consent is not, it's going to be a buzzkill. It's going to get in the way of sex that you want to have. It's going to be taking things from you. That's sort of the tone of that conversation right now. But what it really should be is you're going to be building relationships with people who really are choosing to be there with you. You can trust those relationships. You don't need to be insecure about them. Everybody is here, not because they have to be, but because they want to be. And that kind of positive messaging is really missing, especially for boys and men. And because as humans, we actually want to be with people who want to be with us. We don't want to feel like they're just there because outside pressures or they feel like right. they, yeah, they're putting on a show. Exactly. And when we suggest that men and boys need to use these games and that they need to use coercion and violence to get to some form of intimacy, which is what a lot of them are, that's the message that they're getting is that no one will want you unless you force them to be here. It creates this insecurity. It creates a sense of, well, I'd rather just not know. I want to be able to be violent and domineering and make it so that just nobody will ever tell me that they have a problem with my behavior because it's so hard to tell me that I have a problem with my behavior. When the solution for that would actually be, let's create relationships that make you feel secure. Let's have relationships that make you feel comfortable. And where you know, without a doubt, that people value you when you're around. One thing I think is interesting is that stranger rape is really less common than acquaintance rape. But yet we consistently focus on stranger rape and narratives like in the news media and in films and that the, the stranger rape narrative always seems to be much more dominant than the acquaintance rape. And I would love to just hear your thoughts about why that is and why we kind of need to debunk that. <laughs> well, that's one of the other really disappointing things about the sexual assault prevention tips that women and girls are getting. They are about stranger rape which is a situation that very few of us will ever find ourselves in because it's a myth. The stranger rape myth was created to justify lynchings in the post-Civil War era. And it was this idea in the post-slavery era that Black men needed to be constrained, that they could not have full rights and citizenship, that they needed to be incarcerated if they could not be enslaved because they were so sexually violent. That's not true. It's completely made up, but the stranger rape myth that has continued, it still serves a lot of utility in our society to believe it's real, to believe that perpetrators of sexual assault are not ordinary men, which they are. They are ordinary men. The only thing that distinguishes them from men that don't commit acts of sexual assault is how sexist they are, is the kinds of negative attitudes that they hold about women, girls, and queer and feminine people in general, too. That's the only difference. But it makes us feel a lot more comfortable to think that we'll be exempt from sexual assault. That's kind of the thinking that people get into is, as long as I'm with an acquaintance, I'm safe. And that's one of the reasons that, aside from the racist legacy of the story that's still so helpful for racists, to put it frankly, but for the rest of us, one of the reasons that we lean into the stranger rape narrative is because it makes us feel, as long as we're with people we know, nothing bad can happen to us. But it's not true. And it's creating a false sense of security that can make us a lot more vulnerable, and it can make it harder for us to recognize what's going on. So, for example, there is 
actually a program that works pretty well in working with women and girls, young women in particular. I, I believe they started with college-age women to give them tips to be able to address sexual violence. And it was, you know, a multiple-week course. And they did still give some tips out, right? But they came in this contract of recognizing it's not your responsibility to prevent sexual violence. If something happens to you, it's not your fault. And that's one of the reasons I like this program is that even if the women who were in the program were sexually assaulted, they were still less likely to blame themselves. I think that's huge. But they didn't give any tips on preventing stranger rape because it's not particularly likely to happen. It can be this big distraction. Instead, the tips that they gave were focused on recognizing signs of coercion. How is someone with their words, with actions, with their power over you, convincing you to do things that you don't want to do or trying to convince you to do things that you don't want to do and helping women recognize when that's happening so you can get out of that situation before they've taken away all of your avenues for exit, right? So a really classic example would be intervening on this sort of politeness culture. And instead of saying, oh, there's someone at a party you don't like, well, you should stick around and be nice. You should chat with them, like be friendly. Instead, it was, if you don't like them, you have no obligation to stand around and talk to them. You can just turn around, walk away. If they keep following you, you can confront them. You can ask, if, you know, coming up with strategies to be able to address that kind of coercive behavior. It doesn't work all the time, but it does work some of the time because that is actually the way that sexual violence is more likely to happen. So the stranger rape narrative, it's really unfortunate for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that it's a huge distraction from what we actually need to be doing to protect ourselves. So I want to go back to the idea of that victim blaming, and I really appreciate you sharing about that program that kind of is like moving away from that. Because time mm -hmm. and time again, we hear sexual assault victims feel at fault for the violence they experience. And it almost feels like we're stuck in this loop. And when we make a couple steps forward, then suddenly something happens and we're five steps back. In your research, or what are your thoughts on that? Why do you feel we're kind of continually stuck in that loop? Or has it just been so long part of our culture and our programming that it's just a hard thing to break free from? I think it's both. I think it's both. That most of us were socialized into victim blame. And as much as we might think that we have undone that work or we don't believe that we're going to blame the victim, it's just so deep. It really is a lifelong process and a generational project to get rid of victim blame for sexual assault. We just, we do believe it on such a deep level. But the other component is that when we have these big strides forward, the Me Too movement is a really good example, where it felt like for a minute there was a lot of empathy for survivors. You know, when I started this work, I started this work before the Me Too movement. And at the time, I would interview survivors and ask, who have you told about your sexual assault? And most would say, oh, I told one person, maybe two people, but I got a bad reaction. And so now I haven't told anyone. It's a complete secret. In some cases, I was the first person they had told as a researcher. And after the Me Too movement, that changed a bit, right? That I was actually conducting a study with survivors during that Me Too moment. And then there were all of these survivors that were saying, oh, I tell everybody, everybody, I publicly identify as a survivor. I posted on Facebook. Now everybody knows this part of who I am. And the responses have been so, so supportive. So we had this moment where people were really getting interested in how do I support a survivor? What do I say to a friend or a family member who has been through this? What kinds of things can I do to make it a little bit better for them? And the optimistic part of this is we can do a lot to make things better for sexual assault survivors. It's really clear that the trauma of sexual assault is not necessarily determined by the sexual assault itself. That's one place that trauma comes from. But how much trauma and how much a survivor will suffer is dictated as well by how everyone else in their lives responds. 
And so we can actually make sexual assaults less damaging by doing a good job responding to survivors. We can help them heal with the way that we treat them. This is the thing, though. In this moment, there was a lot of political power that survivors were getting from building these networks, from building solidarity, from being able to speak openly about sexual assault and recognizing, for example, that there were some serial perpetrators who were causing a lot of harm across given industries. They were being removed from positions of power for a very short period of time. Almost all of them are back. If you look into almost any of these Me Too men that you remember them being dethroned, right? Almost all of them are back in the public eye. Almost all of them are back in extremely similar roles to the ones they had before. So it was a very short-term intervention. I have a lot of thoughts on this, but we'll leave that for now. But that resurgence, there was a huge amount of backlash. And now the victim blaming that's coming back has been socially conditioned, and it's a little bit of a different flavor. Still drawing on these deep prejudices that so many of us hold, but it is coming from a slightly different place. So one of the things that I have consistently found in my research in this sort of post-Me Too moment is that the victim blaming is shifting a little bit, that it used to be, she's lying, I don't believe her, she's seeking attention. And now I'm finding that, for example, administrators in Title IX cases, they won't say, I think the victim is lying. They'll say things like, I believe that she believes she was assaulted. I think she's overreacting. I believe she's traumatized, but maybe she was just triggered for some, from something else that happened in her life, right? And this new take on an old version of victim blaming, it settles in pretty quickly. A lot of us want to believe it to defend our favorite people who've been accused of sexual assault and who did it. I'm just going to add that too, that false allegations, again, I'll say are really, really rare, that these are people who perpetrated sexual assault and we don't want them to face the consequences because I really like that band or I really like that movie or, you know, this is my child. I don't want to believe that they were capable of doing something like that. This is a, you know, a family member, maybe my partner who has committed an act of violence and I, I can't confront it. So it is, we're, we're really quick to rush into that sense of denial. So if someone just gives us a slightly different frame on the old hit. We're pretty quick to pick them up. It's almost, it's in her mind. It's all in her mind. She's crazy. It is. It's uh, an extension of that idea of women being hysterical. I actually have a paper that came out this week on this topic. Here we go. Um, Yeah, about... And the title is, well, the second half of the title, let's just do that. (laughs) So the second half of the title is about this role of empathy and hysteria and how administrators make sense of Title IX cases. And so for men, these really are the gender dynamics. And I say men really intentionally because I found that they existed regardless the man's role in the process. If they were the victim, they got more support than women did. And when women were accused, they got less support than men did. And so this empathy is this idea created by a philosopher, Dr. Kate Mann. And it's this idea that we give excessive empathy to men. And we tend to think of it as empathy is a purely positive thing. So it's really easy to feel like you're doing the right thing by being empathetic. But the problem with empathy is it comes at the expense of women. So in the case of, for example, a Title IX case on a college campus, If we get so focused on, ah, it it will be so unfortunate if this man is removed from school, if he doesn't get to finish his education at this particular institution, that will be so hard for him. Well, now we're going to start justifying why to keep him on campus, even though what's very likely to happen is that the victim will not be able to stay on campus because it's no longer safe for them. So that's why empathy becomes a problem. And then when we also have these gender norms around hysteria, The pattern that we see over and over is this desire to protect men, this desire to keep men in their current social standing leads to saying the woman must be crazy, she's just acting hysterically, no reasonable person would interpret what happened this way, and this really just 
classic conditioning of thinking of men as rational and logical. They are trustworthy and credible. We can believe everything they say. And women as being over-emotional. They our perceptions can't be trusted because we just see things the wrong way. We see things through feelings and we can't even recall the basic facts of what took place. So yeah, it's really classic stuff. What is DARVO and how is that tactic used against violent survivors? Well, this is great to bring up, right? <laughs> because it's right on the same topic. So DARVO is a concept created by Jennifer Fried. It's an acronym. It stands for Deny, Attack, and Reverse Victim and Offender. And this acronym is used to describe the way that perpetrators act when they are confronted with the violence they committed. And I'll say that DARVA was created in a sexual violence context, but as I'm talking about it, you'll probably be able to imagine it in a lot of places where a lot of people have been confronted with wrongdoing. You know, institutions often invoke DARVO as a way to distract us from ways that they've harmed people, but this is the way it works. So an example would be that a perpetrator is confronted with the violence they've committed. They're going to deny that they did it or deny that it was harmful. Those are the two main forms of saying, it's not as big of a deal as you think, or I didn't do that whatsoever. This is a complete lie. Then they will attack the victim and they'll say, you shouldn't believe her. She's crazy. She has done this kind of stuff before, or she's just looking for attention. They'll draw on any of those rape myths. They'll create a reason for us to believe that they're not the perfect victim, but they'll come up with something, right? Some reason that we shouldn't believe the allegations against them. Then they'll reverse victim and offender, where they'll say something like, this has just been so hard for me. It's so difficult to be accused. Or in some cases, you know, if you think about the Johnny Depp and the Amber Heard trial, it's a really classic example. They'll say, I'm the real victim. This is really common in cases of intimate partner violence, where when we're physically attacked, a lot of the time we physically fight back. And so one of the things that happens in intimate partner violence cases where a perpetrator is using Jarvos, they'll say, she injured me once. She was fighting with me, listen to this voicemail of a time that we were yelling, and they'll remove the context from what took place in that violent incident to make it seem like their victim was the true aggressor, when in reality, all of those things were acts of defense. So it really is about muddling the water and confusing the listener to make us say, I don't know who the true victim is. I feel bad for both people. It seems like there were problems on both sides. And I want to say really clearly that the point of Darvo is not necessarily to make you believe the perpetrator. It's just to make you confused. It's just to make you feel like you can't possibly know what happened. So you should remain neutral and not take a side because when we're neutral and we don't take a side in these acts of violence, the perpetrator always wins. And so it's really important that we don't do that. It's really important that we can recognize the patterns of DARVO and be able to intervene on them because otherwise it's really difficult to support survivors. We have to be able to stand firm in that. It's something I've seen over and over and over in my work where everyone is really supportive of the survivors up until they name their perpetrator. And then these DARVO techniques kick in and people start to question the victim. They don't want to believe, it says, this is the thing about acquaintance rape, right? That because most acts of violence are committed by someone we know, it's often true that the survivors, friends and family also are friends or family with the perpetrator. And so we do have this knee-jerk reaction to say, no, 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 violence isn't out there problem. That can't be happening in my family. That can't be happening in my friend group. That can't be happening in my workplace. And so we are already predispositioned because of our socialization around things like stranger rape to think this can't happen. I don't want to believe it. And so Darvo just gives us an excuse. Really, really important that we don't take the bait. Why is it important for parents and caregivers to talk to 
their kiddos about sexual assault, like just have a frank conversation. Because I feel it's something that it can be difficult at times, you know, to kind of, you almost feel like, oh, I hate to admit this is out there, but then it's out there. And then, and I call, and I personally look at it as just the same as having, you know, the discussion about substance abuse or the discussion about being aware. It's like, to me, it's like such a life skill lesson mm-hmm. that needs to be taught. And I don't think it's quite gotten there yet in when we're thinking about what we should be having talks with our kids. There are a lot of reasons we should talk to our kids about sexual assault. One of them is that sometimes our children are victims already. And that's something I think is really important for parents who haven't had this conversation in the past but want to broach it for the first time to remember is that your child could have already been sexually assaulted and might be more of an expert than you are, unfortunately. And that can happen truly at any age. And so if you come in and say this is something that could happen when you're an adult, it could happen when you're older, I just want to prepare you, it comes from a well-meaning place, but it could be wrong. And you could be teaching your child, oh, this thing that's happening to me, I guess that's not what you're talking about. And then they might keep it to themselves and feel the sense of shame. And part of this, part of the other reason it's important to talk to our kids is because kids are really unlikely to tell their parents when they've been sexually assaulted. And this is true across age ranges. They worry that they're going to get in trouble, especially if the conversation we have with kids is something like, well, here are the things you need to do to protect yourself. I'm going to get you pepper spray. You know, once you have keys, hold them between your fingers. Here's a list of things you need to do. Think about all of the other times we turn to our kids with that kind of behavior. You need to do your homework. And if you don't do your homework, you're going to bear the consequences. I'm going to take your phone away. That's the thinking that their minds are in. They think, well, you told me I was supposed to do something and I didn't. I didn't succeed. I failed. We don't want our kids to feel like failures when they've been sexually assaulted. And we don't want them to be afraid that they're going to get in trouble with us. And so it's really important to frame that conversation in a way that says, we can just have an open communication about it. Whatever you want to talk about is okay. Anything you want to tell me, you're not going to get in trouble because it wouldn't be your fault. Also, the exception to that would be if your child has perpetrated a sexual assault, which does happen very often, um, especially when our children are boys. But to say then there would be consequences, but coming from a, a loving place of wanting to find an intervention for you because this is not the life I want for you, right? Yeah, it's really important. It's kind of stunning. When I was doing research with college sexual assault survivors, uh, one of the past studies that I did, I asked, who did you tell about your sexual assault? And, you know, people would answer that question. And I would say, was there anyone you intentionally didn't tell? And almost the only response we got, and it came up in almost every interview, was I would never tell my parents. I did not want my parents to know. And it was was the sense of, I'm afraid that they're going to get mad at me. Or this study was with queer survivors of sexual assault. And so there was a sense of the only times we've talked about sexuality, it's them disapproving of me being bisexual. It's them disapproving of me being a lesbian. It's them telling me that I'm not married. And so I shouldn't even be thinking about sex anyway. So maybe I should wait to identify, you know, whatever it might be. For our kids, when we talk about sexual assault, it means that we have to talk about sex in an appropriate way, too, that we need to let them know that, you know, a lot of sexual assault comes from relationships that were at one point consensual. And so instead of saying, why did you end up in this situation? You should have been doing that. You should have been waiting till marriage, you know, whatever it might be. Or I think you're too young. Even if I don't think you have to wait till marriage, I think currently you are too young to be in the situation. Well, that just makes them feel like they can't talk about it without people asking the question. And the same thing with sexuality, that for a lot of survivors are queer. Queer women and girls are targeted for sexual violence. The same thing is true with queer 
queer men and boys. And so you might not know their sexual identity, but others might still be picking up on it. And one of the reasons that queer teenagers in particular would be targeted is because there's a presumption that they won't have support at home. And so it makes them much more vulnerable. This is devastating, I want to add, because when we're talking about whether children or young adults, if you don't have a good relationship with your kids, to be able to talk about sexual violence, then you're actually going to preclude them from seeking help in other settings too. A really classic example is healthcare settings. So if your child as a young adult has been sexually assaulted, but you don't have the kind of relationship where they can discuss that with you, but they're still on your health insurance, they might hesitate to get therapy. They might hesitate to go to the hospital. They might hesitate, you know, if they have an injury from the sexual assault, they might not want any record of that. This is true in college settings too. So a woman's history of sexual violence is the best known predictor of their college GPA. It's a better predictor than any of the other tests we typically use, like high school grades or SAT or ACT. The best predictor that we have identified so far is sexual assault history. And so a lot of survivors will need to do things like withdraw from a class that they're going to fail. And a lot of universities allow that for survivors to say, you know, if you're struggling in school because of your trauma, we'll give you your tuition back, which sounds so great on paper, right? To say this is going to be off your transcript, going to help your GPA. It's going to make it easier to go to graduate school or be able to stay in your major. Survivors often have to change majors if they can't fit in the degree requirements anymore, especially in STEM fields. College sexual assault is one of the main drivers of why women don't complete STEM degrees in college. And so, yeah, it's really important to be able to remove those low grades. It's really important. It also just feels fair to get the money back. But that can create uncomfortable situations for survivors where they say, well, my parents are helping me pay for college and they're going to get the tuition back and they're going to have questions. And it's going to come from this place of why would you drop that class? What are you doing? Are you partying too much? And so survivors will instead just accept the consequences and the low grades because that's the part they don't have to disclose. So there's just a few examples, but there are a lot of reasons why it's really important that we can speak openly about sexual violence. Otherwise, things get a lot worse for survivors. And I will say too that I mentioned this before, when you talk to your child or a child in your family, you may find that they've already been sexually assaulted. I said that part before. The other part, they may have been sexually assaulted by someone else in your family and you need to be prepared to take their side. You need to be prepared to prioritize their safety because if you react badly, that's going to make things much, much worse. It would be better that you didn't know at all. I know we saw a big uptick in violence against girls and women during COVID because it's probably, I'm guessing because of lockdown, of course, we don't have all the data yet in the studies, but I mean, you'd kind of assume that everyone being in the stuck in the same house probably led to, unfortunately, some very terrible situations. I want to move to what is re-victimization and why is it important for us to understand that term and for that to be part of this discussion? So there's re-victimization and re-traumatization. I'm going to talk about both. So re-victimization is when survivors are sexually assaulted again, which I want to say a lot of people find that hard to believe or they'll start to say, well, what's the common denominator? You're the one who's being sexually assaulted over and over again. But it's pretty common. People who have been sexually assaulted once have social vulnerabilities that make them likely to be sexually assaulted again. It has nothing to do with their behavior. It just has to do with their social location, right? So to give you a couple of examples, someone who is homeless is much more likely to be sexually assaulted than someone who has a safe place to sleep at night. And that's true whether they're sleeping in a shelter. There are huge sexual abuse problems in shelters that lead a lot of women who are unhoused to choose to sleep in public because it is safer than a shelter, but that's going to be dangerous too. And so when someone who is unhoused is sexually assaulted multiple times to say, well, what are you putting out there? 
that's missing the point, which is that they don't have access to safety because they don't have access to shelter. Another example would be someone who works, for example, as a waitress who is going to be encountering sexual harassment as a normal part of a job. And because we think that that's an acceptable way to treat women in the service industry, it just happens a lot. And it's not anything that they're putting out there. It's actually things that their employer is not willing to do, such as removing, you know, let's say, for example, there's a repeat customer who comes in and they consistently sexually assault and harass staff. And the supervisor says, well, they're good money. Let's keep them in here instead of removing them. That's not the fault of any of the wait staff. It's something, it's a structural failure coming from somewhere else. And so that's why people who are sexually assaulted once are often sexually assaulted multiple times is because there's something about their position in society and something that's out of their control that is leading them to be more vulnerable. But it is very, very common. So that's the first one, is re-victimization. For re-traumatization, that's where an act of sexual violence, the trauma can compound based off of the way that we're treated after it's over. And so this is kind of what I was getting at before when I said, you know, the violence itself, that determines some amount of trauma, but it's what happens after the violence is over that determines a lot of the other trauma. So for example, being told that you're overreacting, being told, I don't believe that this happened to you, being forced into continued interaction with a perpetrator or a betrayer or someone who said those other negative interactions with you, that compounds trauma. And in some settings, we know that, for example, if an institution that you trust is the one that betrays you in these ways, it compounds trauma with the same magnitude and severity as the original sexual assault. Survivors who experience an institutional betrayal from, say, their university they would look on paper the exact same as a survivor who was sexually assaulted twice. It is just as severe. And so when we're thinking about how to address sexual violence in society, one of the best things we can do is treat survivors well in our own lives and do things to make it easier for them. I cannot emphasize enough how rare this is, that survivors have no bad experiences when they're trying to navigate their new world. And it is a new world. And often it's not because people are coming from a place of hating survivors or hating women, but it's because they're just prioritizing the status quo and it's easier for them. So let me give you a classic example that happens in families. You might find out that, say, for example, your child has been sexually abused by an uncle. We'll give that as just sort of a classic example. And there is a funeral in the family where the uncle is going to be invited to attend. And you say, we're all going to go. It's a funeral. We all have to go. That would compound trauma. That would be re-traumatizing. And it's often these moments of re-traumatization. Again, it's not coming from a place of I'm intending to do you harm, but just prioritizing the survivor's needs lower than being polite, lower than meeting social expectations and the sense that you just need to suck it up and be resilient and go through it. That's not how trauma works. It compounds. The more that we're around things that cause us harm, it gets worse and worse and worse. There is no point where you just get used to it and it gets better. That's a myth. And so it's really important when we're trying to avoid re-traumatization that we just allow survivors to do what's best for them. Surprisingly, this hasn't come up yet, because I'm surprised. This is usually one of the first things I say. And so hear me when I say this is really important, right? Like, take your notes. The way that survivors heal, because sexual trauma, we often think of it as doing something you don't want to do. That's not quite right. The real harm of sexual trauma is a loss of bodily autonomy. And so the only way to restore that harm is to restore survivor's autonomy. All that you need to do to treat survivors well is to just let them take the lead. And to say things, for example, in the funeral example, say, not, not even just do you want to go, right? Like that's one question, is 
is this something that you want to do, yes or no? And then if the answer is yes, what do we need to do to make you feel safe? I can keep him, you know, I can keep the perpetrator distracted. I can make sure he doesn't come to you. We can not go to the gathering afterwards. We can create our own gathering with people who you feel more comfortable with. We could ask that the uncle is not invited, right? You know, thinking about this whole list of things we can do to make the survivor feel more comfortable. I used to be a victim advocate. That's how I got into this work. And one of my favorite parts of that job was survivors would feel like there were no options ahead of them. And instead thinking, okay, no, if we stop thinking about the way we should do things and the way things have to be done, and instead think about all of the possible options that are on the table for what we could do, we can come up with 10 different choices. And then a survivor can make one of them that will feel the best. But that takes a lot of cooperation from our social networks. That's not something that survivors can figure out entirely on their own. And so our role in avoiding re-traumatization is being flexible and saying, yeah, I know this isn't the way things are done. I know people might have an opinion about it, but that matters less to me than protecting the survivor in my life. If I have a daughter who's going off to college and suddenly I'm now aware and I'm thinking, wow, what does this, what is the culture at this school? How do they handle sexual assault? What steps can I take as a parent or caregiver to just to, to do my research to understand what my child is walking into? Do I know if there's a supportive system or do I know there's a system that's actually quite lacking? How can I help determine that? <laughs> I'm sighing with exasperation because, unfortunately, I don't think there are very many universities that are doing a great job at addressing college sexual assault. So you're really looking at a magnitude of how bad it is. But there are differences. And so one of the things that I would look to is do they remove perpetrators? Are they willing to remove perpetrators? And I think that part of this is just creating pressure on the school and letting them know that this is something they care about. I did, for my dissertation work, I spent a year at one university, and I will never forget, I was interacting with everybody, victims, perpetrators, administrators, and I spent a year with the administrators in particular, and in one of my first meetings in the dean of students' office, they told me that they were glad to have me on campus, that sexual assault is one of the issues that parents ask about the most, and I said, oh, really, you know, what, from what perspective do they ask? And it was often coming from the perspective of, will my son get kicked out? And so it's important from a place of solidarity to ask these questions from the perspective of a survivor. And that's true, I want to say, for men, too. Men can also be sexually assaulted, and they will also need resources as survivors. And so it's something that even if all of your children are boys, maybe men at this age, you should still be asking these questions as an act of solidarity, right? And so it is important to just ask. Are you willing to remove perpetrators? Is that something that's easy to do? The other thing I would really look into is what resources are available for survivors and how well are they funded? So ask things like, can I walk into your victim advocacy office? And we really want schools to feel embarrassed if their victim advocacy offices, for example, the, the one at the school I was at was a single room where all of the advocates were together. That means that if your child needs victim advocacy resources, they have no option of getting them privately. It's happening in this sort of bullpen where people are going to come and go. They're going to get interrupted as people walk in. People walking by might hear it. That should be a well-resourced office, right? And so asking for that, saying that this is something you're looking for, and there, there are huge disparities in how schools support these offices. Sending children to places where these offices are better supported is really important. 
in this political climate, it's worth also considering whether or not they'll have access to everything they might need after a sexual assault, including access to abortion, easy access to abortion, making sure that their records are private and that the school will defend them if they do need to travel over state lines to get access to an abortion. And I just want to be really clear about this. I know that some of the laws say that there are exceptions for rape victims, but they don't work. We are talking about, I mean, I couldn't give you an exact number. It's a really hard thing to cover, but the studies that do exist suggest that we're talking about maybe a handful of survivors are able to access these rape exemptions. And a lot of the time, the answer is like the number of people who get them per year is, is zero. They are meant to make us feel better about these restrictive laws, but they don't work. They don't actually do anything. And for no other reason than the process of reporting a rape takes too long to be able to then be able to get an abortion within, you know, the six weeks or however much time that you're allotted. So that's something to think about, too, is which states are going to be friendly um, and which, which campuses are going to be careful. Something that we don't like to think about but is worth thinking about is whether or not the campus allows students to carry guns and keep guns in the dorm. I was pretty astonished. The state where I did my dissertation work allowed students to have guns in the dorms, and that meant that a lot of sexual assaults ended in women being threatened with guns, which was something I had not encountered at schools that didn't have those laws. And then also, in those cases, the schools would not do anything. They wouldn't intervene. We would like to think that if someone is threatening our child with a gun, that that would be cause for someone to step in and do something. But actually, it turned into quite the opposite as well. He has a right to have that gun. And something that I heard said to survivors pretty explicitly was, if he's only a threat to you, that isn't enough. He would have to be planning a mass shooting against the entirety of the campus. But if he's just planning on killing you, we will not intervene. And so that's something to look into as well. I'm trying to think if there are any other big things. I think those are my main ones. Pretty uh, big. They're pretty big. <laughs> and unfortunately, yeah. I'll say it's still and not enough. Yeah. None of these things are enough. And a lot of it is about creating pressure. It's a really bad situation right now for parents who are trying to choose a safe environment for a daughter to attend school. I don't think you can guarantee it on any college campus right now. And that shouldn't be the case. But we can do things to make some of them safer and to make sure there, you know, there are two ways to think about it. One is, are they doing anything to prevent sexual violence, which often does mean taking violence seriously when it happens and holding perpetrators accountable and removing them from the space. But the other is, if something should happen, you really want to make sure that your child will not have then the compounded problem of needing to drop out because they lack the resources to succeed. And so making sure that there are lots of resources available to them that will be helpful. And you have to be their advocate. You do have to be their advocate. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and you, are, you, have, you have been this whole time. It's just a continuation of you're going to have to step in when you recognize that things are not right and demand that. It's true. And to make sure that that's something that universities know that we're thinking about. They really rely on the fact that all of the other schools are doing a bad job to protect them. They love to point at their peers and say, well, you know, we have one more thing than that school, or this is a problem everywhere. And, and it's sort of treated as just the cost of a woman being ambitious enough to want a college degree to say, well, you know, this is just the punishment for that. You just have to go through this. It's part of the hazing ritual of coming to a college campus as a woman. There's going to be sexual assault. And so... We need to hold them accountable and say, that's not acceptable. That's not acceptable. And one of the things that can help, and, you know, I feel a little complicated about saying this for a lot of reasons, but one of the things that can help is the fear of litigation. If you know 
and you have the resources to see that your child's rights have been violated, they do respond to the fear of litigation, at least a little bit. It's worth it. <laughs> it's, it's a bad you know, look, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's a From bad America. look. And also, yeah. you know, rights have been violated. And I will right. say that it can be difficult to win some of these cases, but a lot of the time survivors do win. And the culture on college campuses where sexual violence and sexual harassment is just the cost of doing business, that it's just normal in that setting, that's not normal in most other settings. And so when you're taking those complaints off of the college campus, when you're bringing some kind of additional oversight, there are often results. People are pretty horrified by what's taking place on college campuses, right? And so Litigation is one way to get things outside of the institution. There are a lot of other ways, too. I would also look into places that have a solid community rape crisis program that have other resources within the community that, you know, often aren't particularly well-resourced either, but at least are not going to gaslight your child. That's a really big deal. And then the other plug that I'll put in is that the state of California, and we should all be lobbying, I think, all of us should be lobbying our representatives to do something like this. But the state of California has recognized that schools cannot be trusted to treat survivors well. And so they passed a law this past year to move victim resources and to make off of college campuses. They're still present. Your child could still walk into a building on campus. But the victim advocates are no longer employees of the schools. They're employees of the state, which means something that has happened historically is that when a victim advocate pushes too hard and is too effective at their job, they get fired by a school that doesn't want the disruption. And so when these resources have been moved to the state, which these were state institutions, they were already technically state employees. It's not even an expansion of government. It's just a reconfiguration of it. But when it is coming from a different state agency, well, now the victim advocates can be incredibly effective. Now they can fight a little harder. They don't have to be afraid of getting kicked out of the room or losing their job. And so they can just be better at their job. That's something that I would love to see happen across the country. I'd love to see all of the Title IX process moved off of college campuses. Frankly, there are so many conflicts of interest. We cannot trust them to do a good job. They don't do a good job. There was a study, you know, I imagine many of the listeners won't know this. There have been a few studies about how often Title IX offices do intervene and do remove perpetrators from campus. And on average, it's about one perpetrator is removed every three years. It's so much rarer than we even thought. They're doing even worse than we thought they were. And so I think it is fair to say that we don't want our universities to do this anymore. We don't trust them. There are a few states, California being the first, that are moving in this direction. It's a really positive change. But obviously something that we as the public should also be asking questions and talking to our representatives and saying, hi, this is a problem. What are we doing? Right. Yeah. And we know better. That's the other thing that I think is so astonishing that a few years ago, there was recognition that the U.S. military could not be trusted to address sexual violence in-house. And so now sexual violence is not done within the same court martial system. It was considered to be a huge conflict of interest. This should be true in every organization in our society, that the more that we can externalize processes of addressing discrimination, the better. We'll start to actually see, instead of defending the institution that doesn't want to be painted in a bad light, that doesn't want to have to worry about this stuff, that doesn't want to have to fire a beloved employee, whatever it might be, we might start to actually see some real changes when there is some oversight, when all of the stuff moves external to these organizations. As we're pushing for, obviously, pushing for changes for the future, but looking at the current, the present, 
Research shows survivors tend to thrive when they have strong emotional support network, as you've alluded to. The question is, if I know someone who has experienced sexual assault, what can I do to be part of that support network? And you kind of touched a little bit on this, but I think it's just so important because I feel listeners are probably like, well, what can I do if someone comes to me and they've experienced this or we are having a very intimate conversation and they share that they have been a victim? Or to your point, I went to go have the talk with my child and wow, turns out my child has actually already been a victim. Yeah. The first thing that you can do is just be supportive, right? And, and one thing that's really important is to think about not putting any emotional burden back onto the survivor. And sometimes even well-intentioned comments like, I'm so sorry that happened to you, can make victims feel like, oh, no, it's okay. Like, don't get upset. You know, especially when it's someone who we're really close to, who doesn't want us to be burdened by what happened to them. So instead, I like to say things like, thank you for sharing that with me. I really appreciate knowing that. That can be a little bit better than saying something like, I'm so sorry, even. I'm so sorry isn't bad. But it's nice to say, I make sure that they walk away knowing I don't see it as a burden to know this about you. And this is a new phase in our relationship. Now that I know that you're a survivor, I want you to know you can come to me about this if you don't have to, but you can. The most important thing, like I said before, is giving survivors autonomy in what takes place. One of the things survivors worry about is that they'll be treated differently forever after disclosing. And so saying, I'm still going to see you the same way, but if there's anything that you need, you know, you can definitely... Let me know. It can be helpful to think a little bit about situations where you might think it would come up and say, just want to check in. Can I do anything for you? You know, things like that. But those supportive resources are really helpful. You don't want to ever do anything without the victim's consent because that's a violation, right? Consent matters in this situation too. So one of the worst things you can do is to try to take their response into your own hands and say, I'm going to call the police or I'm going to call your school or I'm going to run right in. I'm going to tell everybody, don't do that. You want to keep this information private, confidential between the two of you. Don't share it with anyone without permission and without an explicit reason that the survivor might want you to. You also, if you do think that, you know, oh, I read a book that might be helpful for you, or, you know, I know that you have this thing coming up. Can I help you with it? Make sure it is a question. Make sure that they can say yes or no. It can be really helpful to take things off the plate of the survivor. There are a lot of burdens from being a victim, including things like learning about the resources in a community, trying to make a decision about where you're going to report the sexual assault, if anywhere. There's a lot of issues around, since our social institutions so often fail survivors, how do I manage trauma and how do I manage avoiding my perpetrator, you know, often an ongoing threat of violence? How do I manage that on my own? And so there are lots of things we can do to say, you know, for example, if the survivor is someone who's in your workplace and the way you're finding out is that you were, they were having performance issues and they say, oh, the issue is, for example, I, um, I have a stalker and so it's difficult for me to get into work on time because they're often waiting outside my door. They know what time I leave for work. You know, use the power that you have to be able to say, oh, well, why don't we have a flexible work time, work start for you? You know, if you can work from home for the first part of the morning, that's fine with me. If you need to be a little bit later, that's fine with me. We'll try to make sure your mornings are light. You know, whatever you can potentially do to disrupt that violence. One of the things I really find in my work is the perpetrators can't perpetrate on their own. They often rely on the rest of us being rigid, being unforgiving, being uncompromising with the victim. So again, offering that flexibility wherever you can to make it so that they're not relying on you, right? So the example of the, the workplace of 
yeah, your boss is really rigid and like they expect you to leave on time. So I know exactly what time you're going to leave your house. Well, you could take that tool away, right? And so that can be something really, really helpful as well. The main thing really is just offering support and saying, I'm here for you. I don't think it's your fault and whatever you need. And it does require, I've already said this, I'm going to say it again, like a huge amount of flexibility as I'm thinking over how to respond to this question. I'm just thinking about all of these stories where survivors said that they felt unsupported. And it was, it was rigidity. It was loss of control. It was feeling stuck into a box. It was people not understanding where trauma really comes from. And so you can take an interest and you can educate yourself without putting any of those burdens back on the survivor. That can be really, really huge to just know what to say. But I will, I will say that one of the things that I think a lot of people, they get overwhelmed, right? They say, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. There is a perfect script. Try to rid yourself of that. That's not how we do any other type of conversation, right? It's only when we get into stuff that's uncomfortable that we go to these scripts that make people feel like they've broken a social norm, right? I think about grief being another comparison. When someone says, oh, someone in my family died, the conversation immediately stops. And it says, oh, I'm so sorry. And then the person has to be like, oh, it's okay. Or like explain their relationship. You know, they're kind of put on the spot of like, am I upset enough for you? Am I too upset for you? What am I supposed to be doing? It's better to just have a natural conversation where you are responding to what the person in front of you is actually saying they need and to take some of that pressure off. Um, and that does include, too, not forcing them to teach you how to support them, not putting them in a position where they have to confront that kind of stuff. Do remember that when you're supporting survivors, most of the support they've received has been pretty bad, right? And so if you say, oh, that's, I'm so sorry that happened to you. If you ever need anything, let me know. Just know that the survivor is probably going to respond by saying, yeah, I've heard that before. You know, they're going to have this sense of, I don't. I don't feel like I can take you up on that offer. So you might need to educate the survivor about what you are really offering and think about your own boundaries and what you really mean. Don't offer something that you can't actually provide. And then the other situation I want to explore pretty explicitly is cases of intimate partner violence, because I do think that victims need a little bit of a different kind of support. It's the same, but we really struggle to give it, actually, is the way you should put that where often someone who discloses that they are still in a violent relationship will get a lot of support from the people around them who say, I love you, I care about you, let's get you out. But for a whole lot of reasons, victims don't leave on their first, they might decide they're going to leave and they, they can't. And it can take lots and lots of time to try to leave and to reach that breaking point before being able to safely and successfully leave a relationship. If you are the friend or family member of someone in a violent relationship, these rules of autonomy still apply. And that includes if they decide to stay in the relationship. You cannot be judgmental. You cannot say, you know, you've cried wolf one too many times, or you said you were in a relationship and now you say it's fine. You must have been lying before. People fall into this stuff really quickly with intimate partner violence because we talk about it a lot less. But just let the victim designate what they need in the moment and let it shift. This is true for all types of victims, but it is so true for intimate partner violence victims who often don't have control over very much at all. And they have fewer resources to be able to act autonomously, which means we need to give them even more. And that's also really important for helping them cut through the gaslighting of a violent relationship. That in a violent relationship, that loss of autonomy is really, really apparent. And the only thing that can make it remain apparent to a victim is when everyone else treats them with autonomy, it makes their perpetrator's behavior stand out as inappropriate. 
But if we try to control what they do, if we try to force them to leave before they're ready or before it's safe, we can be putting them in a dangerous situation. But also now it's just a different kind of controlling and it actually makes the abuse look normal. So it's important in all scenarios, let the survivor lead the way, but make it easy. Carry the torch so that they can see all the options ahead of them, but then let them decide which direction to go in. So you're not leading, you're just walking with them and letting them figure out which way to go. Exactly. And maybe illuminating the path and saying, you know, one of the things that I, a conversation I have with survivors a lot is I'll say, they'll talk about their situation and then say, it's really a good idea to just ask a question and say, well, what do you think about the options ahead of you right now? And something that I'll hear a lot is I'll say, oh, you know, I, I don't really like this one and here's why, and I don't really like this one and here's why. And so one of the things you can do in support is to say, I actually might see a third or a fourth option. Can I dig into it? And can I see if there's anything else for you and come back? And sometimes they might need, you know, the reality of violence is it's not like you have to take a prerequisite course to become a victim of sexual assault. So for many victims, they're learning about the violence as they are living with it. They don't have any more expertise than you do. And so what we want is to give survivors autonomy, but not force them to play the role of an expert when they probably need an education too. That's really, really key. And so if you can take some of that burden of how much they need to learn about how to support themselves off of their shoulders, that can be really helpful. Is there an online resource that you think is excellent for people who want to learn more they can go to and read about and just kind of educate themselves? There are so many online resources, but the one that I would recommend is not a specific national resource, but I would say go look up the Coalition Against Sexual Assault in your specific state. They usually it'll be, you know, so for example, if you are in um, California, there are a lot of C1, so it's Cal CASA, C-A-L-C-A-S-A, but most of them are just, you know, if you're in a state with a single letter, it'll just be that letter and then C-A-S-A. And so those websites, they have a lot of information about all of the different resources available in your state. And that's really huge. I would also look up any local rape crisis centers in your state or in your city. They'll have resources and they'll also be resources <laughs> that you can offer. And I recommend these local places for a few reasons. One of them is the laws and the resources that are available for sexual assault differ so much from state to state that it makes some of the national resources when you click on them feel a little empty, that there's a sense of, oh, but what, what are the options for survivors and what can they do? They're so different that national organizations can't cover it. And so you often, I find that when you send people to a national resource, they might get a good education about some of the basics of sexual violence, but they might not have any idea what to do, right? And the other thing is that it is nice to know what's going on in your local community. It is nice to be able to find people who are coming from a bunch of different approaches, and you can find the one that works best. It's more work. It's absolutely more work to look up all of these different local organizations and get to know them individually. But again, if your goal is to give survivors lots of options, that's way better than one website that they might look at and say, oh, this doesn't really feel like it's the right fit. Excellent advice. Dr. Nicole Badera, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. To all of you tuning in, thank you for joining us on Girls That Create on Word of Mom Radio. Conversations like the one you heard today are crucial for making our society safer for everyone. We will close out with our theme song from Smith Sisters and the Sunday Drivers. Till next time, this is Erin Prather Stafford. She is sure. She is sure. She is strong. She is strong. She is strong.